You know, last week we talked about um, what makes a great follower as we seek to live under the rule and reign of Jesus. And it's in this domain that he called the kingdom of God. Many of you commented about last week and about how those qualities that make a great follower, you hope to be able to cultivate those in your life. I just want to remind you that the kingdom of God, uh, maybe a definition that we could use, is the range of God's effective will. That's the way uh, Dallas Willard described it. It's kind of that sphere of life where God, His will is done on earth as it is in heaven. So as our primary mission as Christ followers, it should not be to go to church. It should not be to defend the Bible. It should not be to just start ministries that assist people, although those things I just described are very, very good things. Our primary calling is to be kingdom bearers and kingdom bringers to this earth. We've been talking about this for a few weeks now, about uh, the parables. And last week we shifted kind of gears and we started getting to the whole business, practically speaking, what does it look like if you're going to live in this kingdom? Well, as we're going to see today, it involves a very intentional decision on our part. And that decision is to make Jesus the ultimate the ultimate teacher and leader of our lives. Now, to kind of highlight this point, I want to go back in time for just a moment, kind of history that dates back about 100 years. About 100 years ago, a group of people arose who said that Jesus was really nothing more than a teacher. They said he was a good man, he was a wise teacher, we should pay attention to his teaching, that his teaching represents kind of the highest ethical and moral living, but that's really just all that he was, was a really good teacher. So there's kind of that one group and that one uh, category. In response to that, another group rose up, and this group said, no, 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 that's not true. Jesus is not just a teacher. He's much more than that. Jesus is divine. He's the Son of God. He lived, he was crucified, he rose again, he ascended to the Father. And it's good that that group came up and said that. You know, at Oasis, we align ourselves with that group. Jesus is more than just a human being. He is the Son of God. But I want to say this about this process, because in the midst of it, uh, a bad thing kind of happened. The bad thing is that uh, Jesus' teaching ministry Uh, kind of got lost in the shuffle. It got de-emphasized quite a bit. And there was kind of this assumption that began to grow that Jesus' only reason to come to this earth was to die on the cross and to be resurrected and then to ascend to the Father. In fact, a lot of people began to look at Jesus' teaching as just kind of filler until he got to the main mission. Because of that, Some people even said that a lot of his teaching isn't for today. They just kind of threw it aside. So in the process of a very good thing happening, which is saying Jesus is not just a human, a bad thing happened, and that is teaching got neglected. Now this is very important, a very important issue, because what we're going to talk about this morning when it comes to the kingdom of God is that God came to this earth. And as he came to this earth, he establish the kingdom of God, and unless you make Jesus your ultimate teacher in life, it's really impossible to be a part of that kingdom completely. 
You see, during the years of Jesus' teaching, he was not just treading water. He was not just killing time so that one day he could make it to the cross. His teaching ministry was central to who he was and to his mission. But in addition to that, it was exactly because his followers had learned Jesus could be trusted as a teacher that after the cross and after the crucifixion and after the resurrection on the third day, they could then put their trust in him as Savior. In other words, this whole thing of the bond between Jesus' teacher and Jesus' Savior cannot be severed. And what happened is this. People would follow him and they would discover that this guy knows what he's talking about. He really does know what he's talking about. So after he was crucified and resurrected, it was only natural that they would then follow him as Savior and Lord. They would trust the message of the cross. And here's the point, and please, I hope this isn't lost on us this morning at Oasis. What Jesus said is as important as what Jesus did. He came to be your teacher. Now listen, he's much more than that, but he is not less than that. It is central to who he is and what he does. He lived, he walked among us, and he talked among us so that we could live the life that God imagined for us. Now here's the question as we delve into this teaching. Have you made Jesus your ultimate teacher? Have you really? There's a couple of things involved in this. The first one is this. Do you really believe Jesus knows what he's talking about? Like when you read his teachings, do you believe that he knows more about life and more about God and more about people and more about anything than you do so that when you're disagreeing with him and you find yourself sometimes disagreeing with him or you're torn between two thoughts, you're willing to say, you know what, either I'm misunderstanding Jesus or I'm just afraid to put into practice what he teaches. Do you really believe that about him? And then secondly, secondly, do you trust him? Now, when I talk about trust, I'm not referring to certainty about him. I'm talking about, are you willing to do what he says? Are you willing to do what he says when it is unpopular, maybe frightening, maybe countercultural? You see, that's the primary sign of a great teacher. Are you willing to do what the teacher says? This morning, we have several teachers in our church. In fact, if you're a teacher, whether it be uh, in the school system or whether it be at home, as a, maybe a homeschool mom or dad, uh, just raise your hand real quick. Okay, look at this. Just look around. This is incredible how many teachers we have. It really is awesome. And those of you who teach on a regular basis, you know the number one question that your students ask. You got it. Exactly. You pour out your heart to them. You seek to give them truth. And they always ask the same question. Is it going to be on the final? Is it going to be on the final? Do I have to know this? See, here's the way it works in our society. In general, uh, the teaching model in our culture is that we kind of do information dump. Students are like empty buckets. And whoever the teacher is, we get to fill those buckets up with information. So they sit there a lot of times and they get filled with information. And what they want to know is at the end of the day, at the end of the semester, wherever it is, is this going to be on the test? See, we don't want to really think about things a lot sometimes in our education system. 
We like to have lists. So if we master the list, we can spit it back out. We have what is called engineering principles, like six steps to a successful life. You pick up magazines, you see them on the front, six steps to brighter teeth or something like that. Anybody watch infomercials at night? Come on, somebody watches infomercials at night. Somebody's watching them. If you ever watch them, you know they're all about how to make a wonderful body or beautiful hair or have more money or make great juice. <laughs> right? And it's all about list. Here's the steps. You watch and we're going to fill you up with information and how many steps it takes to do this or that. One of the things that used to just confuse people like crazy about Jesus is that he very rarely would give a list. Occasionally he would. He would say something like, love God, love people. Pretty, pretty direct, right? But he doesn't do that very often because there's something that Jesus is after more than education. He is after transformation. One of the verses in Luke chapter 6 there's a pivotal verse here, kind of for this whole series. He says, A disciple, when fully trained and when fully formed, will be like his teacher. So what Jesus would do is he would teach against some kind of backdrop, some situation that was going on around him. And very often, um, and we're going to get to this later uh, in this series, very often Jesus taught against what might be called general prevailing assumptions. General prevailing assumptions. Uh, in Newsweek magazine, if anybody ever reads Newsweek, there's a little section at the beginning of Newsweek uh, each week labeled CW. You know what CW stands for? It's not a television station either, okay? CW stands for conventional wisdom. And what Jesus would often do is he would give a teaching that would kind of des was designed to show the falsity of conventional wisdom. What the world thought, what society thought, what cultural thought, as opposed to the real kingdom of God. See, here's how it works in our day. Most of us, when we think of heaven, we think of wanting to go to a place, right, when we die. Is that true? Most of us think of that. So, one day we can fly away and be with Jesus. But Jesus taught a very different kind of message. He taught that the kingdom was near. He taught about a kingdom where we could experience God right now in our circumstances on a personal level. And we could know that God is there. His message was not just about one day we're going to die and go to heaven. And he comes along. He's trying to show people and tell people about this and trying to see if they will follow him. Well, now this is a great message. In fact, this is a revolutionary message. But people are wondering... What exactly does that look like, Jesus? What does life look like for a person who would live in the kingdom of God now? And more importantly, like who's invited to the party? In Jesus' day, and Robbie has taught about this before uh, very astutely, when it came to spirituality, when it came to life with God, people in that day thought they had figured it out. They thought they knew for sure what the kingdom was like. And they secondly thought they knew who was going to be in and who was going to be out. There was a very small group of men in that day. Most of you have heard of them. 
they were kind of the superstars of religiosity. And they would kind of set the bar of what expectation of a relationship with God would look like. If you want to think about it in our day, they were like the LeBron Jameses and the Kim Kardashians and the Beyonce's, I'm sorry, of the spiritual world. Nothing wrong with Beyonce. Just that's kind of what they were thought of. They're the top, the pinnacle, the highest, the elite in their category when it came to spirituality. And the average person, the average guy and girl would look around at these people like a bricklayer or a restaurateur or a banker or, you know, a baker or blacksmith, and they would say, I'm never going to make that list. If that's what it takes to be in the kingdom of God, I am never, ever going to make that A-list. What is really sick is that the spiritual elite took kind of a perverse delight in the fact that they wouldn't make it to the party. So one day, one day, all these people, thousands of people, are following Jesus, this rabbi, and he's teaching and he's touching and he's healing them. And Jesus decides that he's going to go public with this explanation of what life in the kingdom looks like and, more importantly, who is going to make it in. Matthew's gospel records this amazing picture. We have come to know it as the Sermon on the Mount. This is the sermon that contains the Beatitudes, the Lord's Prayer, the challenge to love your enemies, the golden rule, and it ends with the parable of the wise and foolish builder. We're going to begin a journey today for the next few weeks about Jesus as our ultimate teacher here. We're going to look practically, but this morning I want us to start on that mountain overlooking the Sea of Galilee. Thousands of people there. And I want you to just, if you can in your mind's eye, try to go there with that crowd. Try to think about what it would have been like to follow this rabbi Jesus and have him touch and heal. Maybe someone in your family. Maybe even you. And the big question that is in their mind as they sit there on that hillside that day is, do I have what it takes to make it in? There's this enormous tension building in this crowd. There's anxiety there. Am I invited into this thing called the kingdom? It's like the guy or the girl who's waiting to get asked to the prom. And they wonder, you know, is the text message going to come through? Is my phone going to ring? It's like the person, some of you, who had your dream job opportunity and you're just waiting for that phone call. Who's going to contact me? And when will I be in? Well, Jesus starts talking. And unlike most preachers, there is no opening joke. There is no fuzzy you know, illustration. <laughs> There's no personal story. He just opens his mouth and he says one word. He says, blessed. And quickly, all the religious leaders kind of sit up tall because they know who he's talking about. They think he's describing them. Even in the people in the crowd probably turned around and kind of looked at someone, one of the spiritual elite. And they know that blessed refers to sacred delight. Sacred uh, because it belongs and comes from God and delight because it's unexpected. If you literally want a kind of a, a, a pretty good translation of that word, it would be in our day the word happy. It's a little hard because in our English language, 
when we think of happy, we think of something just kind of trite, right? You know, don't worry, be happy, kind of a shallow thing, an easy thing. This is not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about happiness in your soul. Jesus is talking about happiness that doesn't come from circumstances in your life. He's talking about a happiness that comes in spite of your circumstances. In spite of your troubles. In spite of the family you were born into. In spite of what job you may have. He's talking about divine favor. Happiness in your soul. And everyone on that mountainside thinks they know who that word is describing. You see... The word blessed isn't describing who they think it's describing. Jesus looks out and he sees these individuals and he's taught them and he's touched them and he's healed them. And I really think Jesus may have used the crowd that day as object lessons. I think he looked out on them and I think he may have pointed over to someone like Levi and may have said, blessed is this guy right here. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) I think people's jaws just dropped. They thought to get into heaven, you had to be rich in spirit. You had to jump through certain spiritual hoops. Jesus said, oh, no, 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 no. It's the poor in spirit. He says, it's those of you who don't have anything in your pockets but lint balls. Those of you who are not hot spiritually, morally, ethically. Those of you who colored outside the lines in your life. Those of you who are rule breakers. Those of you who are spiritually broken, destitute, and bankrupt, and overdrawn. You've got a debt you'll never be able to repay. He said, if you're in that camp, welcome in. I mean, what's so ironic about teaching and the teaching of Jesus here is that it's against the backdrop of people who thought they were good enough. You would never hear a religious leader ever, and you probably won't hear many in this day either say, you know, I'm just kind of poor in spirit. They took pride in who they were. One of the hardest things in life is to acknowledge when you don't have your act together, right? It's humbling. I was on staff at a church one time many, many years ago, and they had this huge Easter production every year, very elaborate, drama, Music. They had live animals in the production. Very, very big deal. And because I couldn't act or sing, they assigned me to the sound booth. Well, they didn't know was not a good thing either. And I had to be back there with the worship leader. And the people on stage had access to this intercom system. So they could talk to headphone, or through headphones to each other backstage. Like the sound booth, talk to the backstage people, talk to the video rooms, et cetera, et cetera. So on one particular night of this production, the senior pastor needed in the middle of it to tell something to the sound booth guys. So he picked up the headset, he put it on, but he couldn't figure out how to turn the intercom on so he could talk. There's a little button on the side, if you've ever seen these things, and it blinks bright red. And it tells everybody else who has a headset that you're trying to get through to them. So the pastor is just pushing this button, and the red light is just flashing over and over. But no one can hear a word he's saying. What was interesting is that even though we couldn't hear him, he could hear everything through his headphones. 
He's pushing the button. And finally, I hear the worship leader, the guy standing right next to me, say, somebody's trying to turn this thing on, and the idiot can't figure out how to turn it on. So he said, turn it on, stupid. Turn it on. (laughs) And just before he said that, the pastor figured out how to get the system on. And he heard every single word of it. It was a classic moment because the pastor replied to him. He said, hey, this is stupid, and I'd like to talk to unemployed right now. (laughs) See, it's hard to admit. Hard to admit when we don't have it together. Hard to admit when we're at zero. And I think Jesus looked at that crowd, and he saw a lot of people who, morally speaking, they weren't on the uptick. They live with a lot of shame, a lot of embarrassment, a lot of guilt. And Jesus said, listen, hey, you, you who don't know the Torah, you who don't know the difference between Genesis and Revelation, you who don't, you know, want anyone to call on you publicly to pray ever, the doors of the kingdom, they're open to you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It's a seemingly natural human response to question God in times of suffering. From Job to the psalmist to Jesus himself, Scripture gives us examples of people who, in times of trial, ask of God, Why didn't I die at birth? Why, O Lord, do you hide yourself from me in times of trouble? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When we are consumed by mourning, it feels as though the sun is blotted out by the sheer weight of our grief. The world grows cold, dark, and for a time it seems as though God is gone, and we are left with nothing but a question, the question, why? To this question of human suffering, Jesus provides an answer, but perhaps not the answer we want or expect. The cross does not give us relief. It does not remove pain. It does not prevent loss and does not extract us from our mourning. Instead, what the cross provides is a God who chooses to join us in our darkest moments and partake in our pain. As author Rob Bell puts it, our tendency in the midst of suffering is to turn on God, to get angry and bitter and shake our fist at the sky and say, God, you don't know what it's like. You don't understand. You have no idea what I'm going through. You don't have a clue how much this hurts. The cross is God's way of taking away all our accusations, excuses, and arguments. The cross is God taking on flesh and blood and saying, me too. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Shrugging passively and quietly retreating, that's often what we think of when we think of meek. In fact, the words meek and weak sound similar to us. So when we hear or read this passage, we hear blessed are the the meek, blessed are they're going to inherit the earth. It doesn't make sense to us. Yet instead of hearing weakness or laziness, I pray that we'd hear courage. Courage enough to be meek, and to surrender. 
like Christ did in the garden. Practicing meekness, choosing to surrender His will to the will of the Father. Where the disciples chose to sleep, Christ chose to seek the will of God and to surrender to it. See, when we become meek, we understand that the world isn't ours in the first place. And when God sees this surrender, He welcomes us in to take part in the recreation and to inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. All my life, I've thought that hungering and thirsting after righteousness had to do with desiring personal holiness, yearning to live a life in obedience to God. And that would be a good desire to have in my heart, to have that all-consuming, single-minded love for God and desire to obey Him. But as I read this verse carefully this week and thought about the context, I started to see a broader meaning. Jesus can't be talking about only personal holiness. The root of the word that's translated righteousness means doing the right things, conforming to what is right and just, meeting the expectations of God. But Jesus' audience in the sermon and Matthew's audience in his account of the sermon would have realized that no one could possibly achieve righteousness on their own. Jesus' listeners and Matthew's readers would have understood that as the prophet Isaiah said, we have all become like one who is unclean and our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. And we realize that too. Our only hope of righteousness is that which comes from God through faith in Christ. It would be arrogant to interpret this beatitude as a promise of perfect righteousness to anyone who works hard enough. So it's not our own personal righteousness that we're yearning for, but God's righteousness. So what would God's righteousness look like? In this whole passage, Jesus is talking about the already but not yet kingdom of God. The Beatitudes are not just practical guidelines for successful living, but a declaration of blessing to those living faithfully in community, acting like the kingdom of God is already here. In our time, just as it was in Jesus' time, some people go to sleep hungry, while others have more than enough. But that's neither right nor just. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness are not just longing for individual, personal piety but they're longing for God to set things right, and they're committed to doing the right thing in the meantime. The promise they will be filled is a sure thing. The passive voice is Matthew's polite way of saying that God, who is so holy that his name can't be mentioned, will indeed set things right. As the New English Bible translation reads, how blessed are those who hunger and thirst to see right prevail, 
they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. When we think of mercy, we usually offset it against justice. Justice says you get what you have coming to you. Mercy says you get a reprieve. I want mercy. If I'm pulled over driving 80 mile an hour in a 40 mile zone, believe me, I want mercy. But are we willing to extend mercy to other people? Unfortunately, in our day, we hear so much of getting even, making sure everybody gets what they have coming to them. Road rage, we hear about that. I'm going to get even with that guy that cut me off. I've even heard of parents at Little League games fighting with one another to enforce their idea of mercy or of justice. And what about war? Isn't war just a large-scale effort of sides to try to enforce justice as they see it? In fact, we've, we've become so casual about this that we even have a term for the innocent victims of these conflicts. We call it collateral damage. This is a picture that you may recognize that was in the news lately of collateral damage. My question is, how do I react when I see that? I could make some kind of a rational case to say which side is right, what is just, or I could shed a tear and just ask, what could I do to make it better? I think that would be the response of Jesus. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. When I think of the pure in heart, I think of brave heroes or people who live righteously or follow all the rules or um, do the right thing all the time. Sharing their confession every time they sin, sharing their thoughts and getting things off their chest and living righteously. And although I'm not, I'm not sure that that's not what this passage means, I'm, I'm interested if it might mean more than that um, and be more applicable to now. The pure in heart does connote living rightly. But what, is, what does Jesus say about that? He, he, he kind of chastised the Pharisees for all their righteousness and their holiness and all their rules and regulations. And they, so they asked him, he said, what is, the, what is the law? What are the commandments? And he said, 
love God and love each other. And he kind of purified that down, kind of condensed that down and filtered all of the other stuff out and left these two things that we have to do, love God and love one another. And I chose this photo because I feel like living rightly and loving God means refocusing our attentions and our intentions back on God and who God is to us. And we call that theocentricity in our lives. We practice that. It's what we do in worship. We refocus. And that's what these great cathedrals, this is a cathedral called La Sagrada Familia. And it's, it's, these cathedrals are built to refocus our eyes and, and force us to look up. And I think that the purity of our hearts is best served when we are completely focused and constantly changing and readjusting our focus onto who God is. And in that sense, not only will we see God at the end of our lives, but we'll see God in each other, we'll see God in the earth around us. We will inherit the earth as we follow the example of Jesus, and we will see God. We'll leave this room today, hopefully, and see God in the world around us. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. So I grew up with a lot of turmoil in my house. Lots of fighting, lots of arguing and yelling, and an occasional object flying through the air. So when I got married and had my own kids, I wanted to create an atmosphere of peace. So we have four girls spread across two decades. So I kind of got a starter set. Sorry, Katie and Hannah. <laughs> But so I, I worked hard at creating this piece, which to me meant no yelling, which, you know, we, we don't do, and everything quiet and peaceful. And it was wonderful for me. And I came to realize as I watched my kids grow and as I grew, that the same power that my dad wielded over me in the ways he wielded it, I was wielding that power over my kids Sorry. He took away my voice, but in a different way, I was taking their voice away too. So Martin Luther King Jr. once said, true peace is not merely the absence of tension. It is the presence of justice. Sorry, I'm shaky. So I realized that the absence of conflict um, may feel peaceful to me, but not to others because those children didn't have a voice because I quietened it. I quieted, you know, I wouldn't let them talk. I wouldn't let them share their feelings. I took their voice. And we are people of power in so many situations. And we need to be wise with how we use that power. So we have to give a voice to the voiceless. We have to invite everyone to the table. We have to open discussion and talk, even when it's uncomfortable. We have to talk about those uncomfortable things and talk to the people who haven't been able to have a voice or to talk. We have to stand up for the marginalized and, to the, for, and stand up for those with no voice. 
because making peace is an action and we are responsible to use our power in those actions to help those who don't have that power. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. February the 13th, 2015. About a year and a half ago, 21 Coptic Christians were led to the shore of the Mediterranean in Libya and executed by the Islamic State. The icon that you see was painted by a modern artist named Nikola Sarich. He does icons. Icons are pretty, a pretty ancient practice, but are also sometimes uh, practiced by contemporary artists. And in this one, 20 of the 21 are looking up at Christ. The one at the bottom was looking ahead, I think, at all of us. While I know that this beatitude is addressed in the second person plural, blessed are you all if you're persecuted or when you're persecuted. And sometimes I'd like to think that maybe that's me. But I think the truth be known, living in Lakeland, working at Southeastern, pastoring Oasis with Phil, not a lot of persecutions really come in my way. And I think sometimes when we don't face real persecution, we try to imagine that maybe what I'm struggling with is persecution. I had to give up my Saturday morning yesterday and miss game day. I'm persecuted for Christ. <laughs> I'm giving up my Sunday morning as opposed to going fishing or playing golf. I'm persecuted for Christ. I think that Perhaps we need to realize that we live in a big world that's also a dangerous world, and there are plenty of Christians in this world who actually are being persecuted. They're being persecuted because they're Christians. A year and a half ago, 21 of our brothers were executed because of their faith. I went to seminary with a guy. His name was uh, Vladimir Maroshkin. He was Russian. You might have guessed that by his name. <laughs> Vladimir had spent five years in prison for starting a Sunday school. Vladimir's dad had spent 25 years in prison for planning a church. Vladimir's grandfather was executed by the Russian government when Joseph Stalin was their dictator. How then might we identify with those who really are persecuted? The fact that we might not necessarily be part of that marginalized group doesn't mean that we shouldn't care and that we can't connect. I think we reach out to them in ways with our prayers, with our thoughts, and if the opportunity arises, opening our homes and our churches to those who are persecuted. 
like the prophets before. We can stand up and speak for justice, especially for those who have been persecuted. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you.